Piedmont Healthcare offers you exceptional, hassle-free care closer to home. Piedmont, an official healthcare provider of Atlanta United. Three franchises in Atlanta's sports history have won a professional title. There was the baseball team that won the World Series twice, once in 1995, and most recently, as we all remember, in 2021. And there's, of course, Atlanta United, the soccer club that won the MLS Cup in 2018, in just the club's second season. But the third? That's where it gets a little tricky. To test this, I sent my friend Joe on a mission to see how many people in Atlanta knew the answer. Before kickoff between Atlanta United and Inter-Miami in September, he took to the streets to ask soccer fans face-to-face. And Joe had a little bit more time on his hands pre-match than he expected, given the fact that a certain someone didn't make the trip. We all know who that is, right? Here's Joe asking Atlanta United supporters who was the first professional team to ever win a championship for Atlanta. Are you excited for the game today? Yes! What do you think the score is going to be? 5-0! And who's going to win? Let's go! Let's go! Who won the city of Atlanta's first professional sports championship? The Braves. A lot of people guessed baseball, which is understandable. The team here in Atlanta has won two World Series titles. The first in 1995, and then most recently in 2021. The Knights. Next. The Braves. Close. Atlanta United. I'll just say the Braves. Atlanta United. Nobody correct so far. Uh, Atlanta United. Wait. Um, no, no, no. So 1995, it was the Atlanta Braves, and they won the World Series. And then I think in 1991, was it the Atlanta Falcons who went to the Super Bowl with Dan Reeves as the head coach? But wait, I don't know if they won, though. I think they lost. Oh, I was here. It was the Atlanta United in 2018. It was amazing. The energy was unbelievable. It was so amazing. Close. Oh, wow. You knew it all. Those answers were great. Thank you for playing. My pleasure. Thank you. Going into it, I thought we might find one or two people who knew the right answer, but as it turns out, nobody that Joe talked to knew. This team won their league title in 1968, nearly 30 years before Atlanta's next championship in professional sports. And this team won in their second season of competition. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yes, it was a soccer team, but not Atlanta United. Only have two sports that have won championships. And and, and think about it. We started with soccer and, and we, we're back to that now. And and then there's the Braves. And they all played at the stadium together. <laughs> you know, in terms of where the seed was planted. Welcome to the History of Atlanta Soccer, presented by Piedmont. I'm your host, Sandy McAfee. And together with Jason Longshore, we're diving deep into the rich, beautiful, passionate history of soccer in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we're taking a look at the launch, success, and legacy of the Atlanta Chiefs, the first professional soccer team in the city. Chapter one, the Atlanta Chiefs. The Atlanta Chiefs are first and only soccer team. They have won their division championship, and they won it with heart and pride. By the time we hit the 1960s, the city was booming. Atlanta had tripled its size. Atlanta continues to be a leader in transportation. 
The city begins construction on a vast network of new highways and freeways. Ah, the birthplace of the notorious and familiar Atlanta traffic. Atlanta, the capital, had its beginning as a railway terminus and was originally known simply as Terminus. Since the capital is also the state's largest city, most vacationers are inclined to make Atlanta the first and longest stop. Well, and during this time period, the city actually tripled in size, and this was part of a plan of improvement that called for the annexation of a lot of areas surrounding um, Atlanta that weren't part of the city at that time, about 82 square miles, and added 100,000 new residents. So it definitely, this was and contributed to the city becoming more of a force and more of a more of a kind of organized within the city limits. Um, and at the same time, you have a lot of industrial growth, business growth taking place. That was Dr. Andy Ambrose, a local historian. He's worked at the Tubman African American Museum in Macon, along with the Atlanta History Center as a historian. And he's written two books on Atlanta history. If you've listened to our previous episodes, you'll recognize his voice. The effects of Atlanta's growth weren't good for all people. The Black population of Atlanta faced a severe housing shortage and the effects of racial discrimination in the Jim Crow South. This growth and this development of highways coupled with urban renewal uh, had a very um, big impact in displacing almost 67,000 people, most of those African-Americans in that period from 1956 to 1966. Um, just to give you a sense of how how pressing that became, in uh, 1959, African-Americans made up 36% of the population, but they were occupied only 16% of the available residential land. So this becomes a really big uh, source of tension and, and negotiation uh, in the following decade. Most notably, the 1960s was a significant period for civil rights. One of the main groups in the city calling for racial equality was the Atlanta Student Movement, a group formed by Morehouse College students. They placed ads in newspapers typically read by white readers, calling for improvements in key areas such as education, jobs, housing, and voting. Inspired by the student sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina, the Atlanta Student Movement launched sit-ins in the city. It was a groundbreaking effort in the fight for civil rights. Dr. King uh, got pulled into this as well. And actually, he was arrested at one of the sit-ins and because of a, a parking ticket that, ha the, that hadn't been paid, he was sent to Reedsville State Prison. So this got a lot of notoriety. It got a lot of attention. Um, and it, uh, it did bring about change. Her young mother stops at a red light. Her baby straps snug in the seat. Fight on the corner in the city too busy today. The light changes and she hits the gas pedal. She wants to get home this late. Here's a pop and then a soft whipper in the city too busy today. Court ordered desegregation of public schools began in 1961 with nine children who were integrated into public schools. Martin Luther King Jr.'s march to Washington occurred in 1963 paving the way for the Civil Rights Act, which was signed the next year by President Lyndon B. Johnson. Atlanta was the largest city in the Southeast and was generally considered progressive, but tension still existed. 
These segregationist elements mixed with the displacement of Black residents because of the city's growth all came to a head during the Atlanta riots in 1967. Andre Lamont is an Atlanta native and film producer who now works in production at AMB Sports and Entertainment. Lamont was born in the city and lived through the 60s. He was young at the time, but he remembers the highs and the lows of this stretch of Atlanta history. And we lose Dr. King. And so now these, these players like Hank and other, Dick Cecil, these people, the builder of the stadium, they have to come together now and say, hey, what we're trying to build here we got to keep it intact and we got to make sure that, I guess that's how we got the mantle, the city not too busy to hate. So one could say sports really set the city off because if you go back and look at that, along comes a man called Ted Turner to come in and do what he did and embrace sports the way he did and to have a 24 hour news station. So now we're talking <laughs> three sports franchises. We lost Dr. King. And now all of a sudden, we get the Hawks, and then, then Ted comes in the picture, and he changes the game. So in a 10-year period, when people look at Atlanta, that's serious growth. And of course, you can't have sports growth without business support. And so it's a, it's a great time. It's just a great time. All in about five years, we, we changed And sports is a change maker in America, and we know that. Atlanta Stadium was built, and in 1966, the new pro teams in Atlanta began to play there. At one point, three different professional franchises play their home games at Atlanta Stadium. The stadium also gave the city one of its first venues to attract global talent. It opened the door for Atlanta to host major events outside of sports, like in 1965, when four men from Liverpool played at the stadium. It might sound like they were playing soccer, but these men were known for their music. We've got to get everything in order here so we get the sound just right for you. I'm from Atlanta, and I hope you'll give the Beatles the greatest welcome that I've ever heard for them. And I've heard a lot, so I want you to really, really show them that they're loved when we bring them out here in Atlanta. When we bring him out, just hold on, hold on. Okay, the Beatles! The Beatles played a concert at Atlanta Stadium in 1965 as part of their North American tour. It was the inaugural event at Atlanta Stadium. That's right, the Beatles christened Atlanta Stadium seven months before the Atlanta Braves ever played a game there. Atlanta got a taste of Beatlemania right at the height of their careers a year and a half after they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. It was the only appearance the group ever made in Georgia, and one of the most exciting events of the city in the decade. The Beatles come to town. The Beatles are coming to town, and they're in this same stadium. You know, you never thought the Beatles would come here to the south, to Atlanta, but they did. Fulton County is blazing full of history, but we just don't know it yet. Everything kind of happened here. Everything has just come about. And people said, Atlanta? Baseball? Atlanta? Football? Atlanta soccer? Really? And then the Chiefs just, they just set it ablaze. 
They're going to be amazed at the physical contact when they see their first soccer game, aren't they? This, I think, is so. That the only padding a football soccer player has is a small piece on, uh, to cover his shins, and often they don't wear this even. Uh, they still go in tremendously fast, tackling with extreme speed and extreme strength. Uh, and again, this is this challenge between speed, strength, and physical durability. As Atlanta was growing in the 1960s, the city was developing its identity, and sports played a big part of it. The Atlanta Falcons began play in the NFL in 1966. That same year, baseball and the Braves moved from Milwaukee and played their first season in Atlanta. Both teams played their games at the newly built Atlanta Stadium. I think most people in Atlanta were baseball friendly. I think the Falcons, to me, were in, uh, kind of an adjustment, like, wow. But I think the Braves came here because they were an established team out of Milwaukee, and they had success out of Milwaukee, and they had Hank Aaron. So we kind of, the Braves, to me, were uh, embraced quickly. When we got the Falcons, I, a, a side story is that the first-round draft pick after they, uh, I guess, got most of the players in the uh, kind of the uh, expansion draft, the first draft player came to my uh, project apartment in Atlanta. My, my mother's best friends bought him there, Junior Coffee. And so to have that happen, to see the Braves, and then when the soccer team got here, it was just, as a kid, you know, you're like in, a, uh, I guess, a sports candy store. The Atlanta Hawks relocated in 1968 and played their first NBA season that year. Their first few games were held at Alexander Memorial Stadium on the campus of Georgia Tech. Then there was also the 1966 World Cup. 97,000 people paid over 200,000 pounds to see it, the greatest soccer game ever played in these islands. England in red instead of their usual white, never before in the World Cup final, but playing a team who've never beaten us before, West Germany, who won the cup in 1954. It's exactly 36 years to the day since the very first final in Montevideo. For the thousands at Wembley, for the millions who've been following the contest all over the world, this is the climax. And West Germany are to kick off. And here's my co-host, Jason Longshore. The 1966 World Cup was a pivotal moment for soccer's growth in the United States because for many it was the first time that you had a chance to see soccer on TV and the, the World Cup final was televised. And what's so interesting about this is as I've gotten to learn more about soccer in Atlanta and soccer in the United States and the history, so many people spell it out as the World Cup was televised, the World Cup final was televised in 1966 and then everybody wanted to start a league. That's not true. There were movements to start leagues nationwide leagues going back to the early 60s and it took a while to grow um, Atlanta was actually mentioned as a city potentially for a league and they signed the documentation to join it in May of 1966 so going back to before the World Cup final was televised what it did is I think it it heightened the interest and maybe quickened the race to launch what ended up being two different leagues in 1967 and they took very different approaches maybe you would have had a little more patience if you hadn't had that world cup final televised but that pushed everybody to go and, and that was the the idea that one now you now people have seen it two 
it was very well received. It was a great match. I mean, the England-West Germany final in 66 is one of the greatest World Cup finals of all time. And three, it just made it a must for all of these owners from Major League Baseball, from the National Football League, uh, NBA, NHL, and these stadiums to have soccer happen there and, and strike while the iron was hot. So the 66 World Cup was a very important element in American soccer history and specifically because what it led to in Atlanta, Atlanta soccer history. You know, one of the things that's interested me in your game, and maybe it's that way in soccer everywhere, but especially in England, not only the, the great game that it is, but the fans who seem to have such an intense interest. I've never heard anything like it. Yeah, this is true. Uh, we think that, uh, well, we hope that the American fans will become so conditioned to soccer that they'll become so involved in it just as much as fans in Europe and South America are. They give themselves to the game because the game gives itself to them. There's nothing like it in the world, I don't think. And I think the American public... Uh, great sports lovers will enjoy soccer to the hilt. Inspired by the events of the 1966 World Cup, the United States announced its first professional soccer league called the National Professional Soccer League, or the NPSL. And leadership at the Atlanta Braves wanted to get involved. The other thing that interestingly enough happens with the Atlanta Braves is that after they arrive in Atlanta, um, they, inspired by the 1966 World Cup in England, they purchased a, a soccer team. The Atlanta Chiefs. So in May of 1966, there was an article in the Atlanta Constitution and it was from the Associated Press saying that a pro soccer club was all set for Atlanta. This was before the Falcons had kicked off, and this was right after the Braves had started their season. It said that the team would begin play in the fall of 1967, which changed, and this league was going to be called the North American Professional Soccer League. There were 11 cities committed, five more on the waiting list. Atlanta was one of them, and this was going to be a league that was seeking the sanctioning from the U.S. Soccer Football Federation at that time or association, I can't remember. All the acronyms get a little crazy sometimes. Uh, they ended up not getting that sanctioning. So during the, the World Cup period of time and that final being televised and the push grew even stronger, there were three different groups who tried to launch leagues in the summer or so of 1966. One group kind of fell apart and some of its members jumped into the other two leagues. The other two were competing for the official sanctioning and the Federation ended up giving the sanctioning to the other league, the non-Atlanta league. That didn't deter the group that had already decided to do this, that had already started before all of this and had, had actually filed paperwork going back to May of 66. It was officially announced in August that the NPSL, the National Professional Soccer League, would be starting in 1967 and Atlanta would be a charter member and the Atlanta Braves received that ownership right to do it. Um, my relationship with soccer actually started with the Atlanta Chiefs. We're talking a city where we just got a baseball team and a football team at the same time. And then they added a soccer team and they're all playing at Atlanta Fulton Stadium. And so for about four years, 
what we had before that was nothing. And then all of a sudden we inherit the Braves from Milwaukee, the Falcons off the rip, and then we get a soccer team. And it's just a buzz in the city of Atlanta. Bill Bartholomew was the owner. He had moved the Braves from Milwaukee to Atlanta. And he appointed the vice president of the baseball team, Dick Cecil, to lead this effort. Bartholomew put two people in charge of this new project. The first was Vice President Dick Cecil. Of Cecil, Bartholomew said he would play an important role in bringing a new and exciting dimension to sports in the Southeast. It, it was so inspirational to a lot of people, particularly young people. And of course, it brought a, a British sort of feel to town because, you know, uh, it, it obviously was put together. Uh, I, I know we talked earlier about Dick Cecil. Uh, not knowing much about him as a child, but his name was synonymous with the city. He was in the newspapers all the time. So you started as the announcement came and there was excitement about a third big league team coming to Atlanta after the Braves and after the Falcons. There was a little bit of a flurry of announcements and about a month later, Dick Cecil had been involved. He was officially named to the new role, uh, according to Bill Bartholomew. Um, also, then Phil Woosnam was hired, and, and Dick Cecil had a huge role in hiring Woosnam. He had recognized straight away that Woosnam was a, a special person and somebody that he wanted in Atlanta to lead the effort. The second person Bartholomew appointed was the head coach for this new team. Phil Woosnam was a player from Wales. He previously made appearances for West Ham and Aston Villa. Woosnam would be hired as head coach of this new Atlanta soccer club. Woosnam had, had just finished his season with Aston Villa, um, was one of the few players in the English first division at the time who was university educated and was starting to figure out what he wanted to do next. He had the thought of being a coach but he also had kind of the idea of doing more than that. I think, I think Dick saw that in him. And at this time, the league was all working together in, in these kind of situations. So you would bring a group of people together that they thought might be good coaches. And if I remember right, I think St. Louis actually had somehow gotten the rights to, to hire Phil Woosnam and there had to be some behind the scenes maneuvering and uh, Dick helped bring Phil to Atlanta and it's one of the most important hires in Atlanta soccer history because I think Phil had the vision once he got here for what it could be. And he saw one, the amount of work that was needed in launching it and really starting from absolute scratch because you didn't have grassroots soccer happening at that time. But he had the vision and how that could happen. And I think he also had the idea that one way to do that was to play entertaining soccer and to play attacking soccer. He wanted his teams to be fun to watch. He wanted to inspire the, the kids that they would go out and work with, but also that would then come and watch the game. So the Atlanta Chiefs and their impact, it doesn't happen if you hire somebody else in that role. Phil Woosnam was critical. Said Woosnam, quote, this is a chance for me to put something back into the game. Professional soccer players tend to take everything out of it without putting anything back. I consider it a challenge. We really are spreading the gospel." Unquote. Woosnam's salary was estimated to be $16,500 a year. Atlanta, Georgia 
is the largest city in the southeastern part of the United States. A major industrial, business, and cultural center, today, Atlanta is also becoming the center of a professional sport new in the United States, but known around the world. Atlanta is home of the Chiefs. The Chiefs played their first season in 1967 as part of the NPSL. Including the Chiefs, the league consisted of 10 members. The Baltimore Bays, Chicago Spurs, Los Angeles Toros, New York Generals, Oakland Clippers, Philadelphia Spartans, the Pittsburgh Phantoms, St. Louis Stars, and the Toronto Falcons. So with the, the two leagues that launched in 1967, you had a pretty wide variety of ownership groups. But if you just put it on paper and you look at the assembled wealth and you look at the assembled connections, I don't know if you've ever had a better launching group of individuals to start a professional sports league, maybe ever. Because you had representatives from the NFL, from Major League Baseball, from the NBA, from the NHL, lots of resources, but not all of them were organized in the same way. And not all of them, in my opinion, had the vision that Bartholomew and Cecil and Woosnam had. A lot of the markets, when you look at the NPSL side of things, the league that Atlanta was in, you had cities that had ethnic communities. And I think the expectation was that people would just come out because it's a soccer team and there really wasn't proper outreach. So Philadelphia, for example, had a thriving soccer community. I don't think they really took to the Spartans. Uh, New York, same thing. I don't think they really took to the generals. So you had some great leadership and large amounts of potential resources, but not all of those resources were, were brought to bear and you didn't really have the strategic planning needed. Atlanta had that and that's why they were one of the few out of the two leagues that ended up lasting past the merger and into the early 70s because they had that vision of trying to grow something where others just expected to be able to pop up the big tent and people would come. The inaugural season for the NPSL was scheduled to run alongside baseball from April to August. Most of Atlanta's matches were set for Wednesdays and Saturdays. CBS signed a long-term multi-million dollar deal to carry the NPSL, including airing 18 games on Sunday afternoons. From early on, it seemed like the league was willing to spend big. The financials of this new league proved to be in a way portentous. Bartholomew estimated that it would take $15,000 per game for the Chiefs to just break even. He even admitted that he expected red ink for some time. Jesse Outler, who wrote at the Atlanta Journal, predicted that, quote, pro soccer would prove popular in the United States, but there would be lean years before prosperity arrives. The first order of business for Woosnam was to bring on his coaching staff. He hired Eric Woodward, a soccer writer from Birmingham, England, to be his top assistant. Woodward was 35 years old. With the coaching staff in place, the Chiefs moved forward with filling out a roster. The first players signed were in 1966, two Englishmen named Vic Crow and Peter McParland. Vic Crow being one of 
the first Atlanta Chiefs signings is actually really interesting because he was somebody that Phil Woosnam knew from their time at Aston Villa. Crow played over 350 times for Villa from 54 to 64. Um, he'd come up at the club as a youth player and had left Villa and went to Peterborough United before coming to Atlanta. And I'm sure that personal connection was a really important element. Uh, also 16 caps with the Welsh national team. But Crow is, is so fascinating in this, and that's why I thought the 2018 MLS Cup final between Atlanta and Portland was actually kind of poetic because Crow went to Portland and was a manager for the Timbers, and I believe might have been their first manager. He was instrumental in growing the game in Portland. So you talk about the roots that Atlanta has had in American soccer. Phil Woosnam, big part of that with what he did, but Vic Crow is another one with what he did here as a player, but then going to Portland and using that knowledge and maybe some of the lessons that he saw firsthand here in Atlanta and using them in Portland to grow the game. Peter McParland was another Aston Villa connection for Phil Woosnam. He played for Villa from 1952 to 1962, uh, almost 300 appearances, almost 100 goals. His signing got a lot of attention, um, not just in Atlanta, but also internationally because he was one of the top players in the 1958 World Cup. Now, this is 1966 when he was signed for the 1967 season. I uh, hadn't played for Northern Ireland in a few years, but being one of the leading scorers and one of the top players at a World Cup, that's something that you can use in the newspaper articles to introduce the player and it. It's something that is that touchstone for a, a lot of people. He had a really good time in Atlanta as well. He had a really successful run over the first two years of the Chiefs and was really instrumental in their success in those first two seasons. The Chiefs signed a player named Sammy Zoom, which would be a pretty great name for a soccer player. That is, if he'd ever played. Zoom would never play a minute for the Chiefs. So as these teams in the NPSL were finding players to sign. And remember, this was the outlaw league at the time. Players reportedly were going to face sanctions from FIFA for signing with this league. You had to go outside the box a little bit. You were looking at some older players who maybe figured their time in the top leagues was done. But then you were also looking at some players who were trying to find their opportunity to break through. And Phil Woosnam announced the signing of Sammy Zoom a player who was described as one of the most colorful and popular players in all of Africa. 29 years old, was a former captain of his national team, um, native of Zambia. He never actually came to Atlanta, and it, it's one of those great unknowns as to what happened at this point. Atlanta did sign African players, and it's so interesting as a a student of history in Atlanta that Atlanta would be the soccer team in these leagues in the late 60s that would really lead the way in signing African players. I guess it's a surprise and it's not a surprise, but Zoom unfortunately wasn't one of them. I kind of wish there was an Atlanta Chiefs jersey with Zoom on the back. Woosnam added fellow countryman Vic Rouse as goalkeeper. Then came two more British soccer stars. Gordon Ferry, who played with Arsenal in Leighton Orient, and Ray Bloomfield, another player from Aston Villa. 
it's no surprise that, that Phil Woosnam would lean on his connections from the English First Division and, and probably specifically Aston Villa and, and other clubs that, that he had played at to build out this roster initially. He wanted guys that he knew. He wanted guys that I think he trusted. He, he wanted guys that were people who could go out and, and sell the game just like he would. And that was a big factor in all of this was the Chiefs wanted to sign players that spoke English. And they did that in, a, in some different ways than maybe you would expect. I think if you've grown up in the United States and playing soccer, you've come across English coaches. It's just something that we're all accustomed to. At this time, it was a no-brainer to bring English players over to come to the States and, and be part of this league. The Chiefs took that a step further and they signed African players who spoke English. They signed players from the CONCACAF region, from the Caribbean, that spoke English. So you had that overriding idea of wanting guys who could speak English, who could go out and do camps, do clinics, could teach the game. But also, and I think this was something that Dick Cecil and Phil Woosnam agreed on, they wanted a a locker room that could get, get along and get together and, and all speak that common language. So. It was a really smart thing for Woosnam to lean on his contacts, but also to go out and sign players who all spoke the same language. The Chiefs signed three players from Zambia in February of 1967. Emmett Kapingwa, Howard Mwakuta, and Freddie Mwale. There's a rumored story of them running into Joe Torrey, who was playing for the Atlanta Braves at the time, as he was leaving the stadium office after the press conference that announced his new contract. So this is one of the crazy things about the Chiefs and Braves sharing ownership and sharing a stadium is that you had these moments of crossover because the teams would work out at the stadium. You didn't have separate training facilities at the time. The teams would work out at the stadium and the offices were at the stadium and players as they would sign would come to the offices, sign, and then maybe walk outside and see the Braves doing batting practice. And for the players who came over from Africa, from Europe, they didn't know baseball. So it, it was fascinating for them to see the Braves take batting practice, probably just like it was fascinating for Braves players to see the Chiefs practice. So you had people like Hank Aaron and Joe Torre and others who interacted with Chiefs players and you had Chiefs players meet these huge US figures in sport that maybe they didn't know why and how and what their magnitude was. So. Just that cross-pollination is so interesting between the Chiefs and the Braves. Another player who signed was John Cocking on February 3rd, 1967. I'm John Cocking. I arrived in the United States February the 3rd, 1967. I played for six years with the Chiefs and one year with the Apollos. Cocking said he turned down offers from top British clubs to come play in America. What it was like when we arrived, it was huge, it was strange, and the first conversation I ever remember having was the next morning when my wife and I were walking down the street and they heard our English accent and this young couple said, why are you here, what are you doing? I said, oh, we've come here to play professional soccer. And there was a look of absolute disgust on the man's face and he said, our girls play soccer here. Players at this time didn't get celebrity treatment from Atlanta residents right off the bat. Alan Hamlin, an English defender who joined the Chiefs in 1971, learned this firsthand. 
before I got with the Chiefs, I was still playing soccer. But I lived down in Jonesboro in 1967. And I was working down there and told people I played soccer. And they said, well, how can you kick that soccer ball so far? I said, what do you mean? It's a leather ball. They said, no, but it's got holes in it. It's like a wiffle ball. And I'm going, no, it's a soccer ball. It's all leather. The black thing patches are actually leather patches. But they insisted that the soccer ball was a wiffle ball. Many of these players ended up working other jobs. I still had to work a job. I, I wasn't full-time professional. So I went down there and Sherwin-Williams got me a job down there in a, in a distribution part down there. And I'd leave there and we'd practice at like five o'clock at uh, FIU. Players weren't exempt from military service either. Hamlin's soccer career was put on hold during the Vietnam War. He was drafted and served in the U.S. military. Well, when you're here on a permanent visa, after six months, you were, had to register for the draft just like any other 18, 20-year-old. I got wind of the fact that they were going to draft me, so I went to an Air Force recruiter and I said, can I get in the Air Force? And the guy says, well, he says, I don't think I can get you a security clearance in time to stop the draft. So I hung around and got drafted. My dad wrote a check to me for airfare to England saying, you know, go home. But he had a security clearance. And if I had run from the draft, chances are his security clearance would have got negated. So uh, I eventually got drafted in December of 68 and went through training. And all through training, I was told, well, you can't go to Vietnam because you're not a citizen. So I said, okay. Well, about 30 days before the end of training, I got orders for Vietnam. My mother got all upset. She wrote a letter to um, Kennedy, and he just wrote back and says, there's nothing I can do about it. So I, my dad still had that same check, and I said, no. So I, I got sent to Vietnam, and I was there for 13 and a half months in the jungle. When I came home from Vietnam, I had my citizenship, and I went back training with the Chiefs. At that time, the league required a certain percentage of your players to be American on your roster. So there was me, there was John, uh, Sol- Jeff Solem, there was Sonny Carter. I think there was a goalkeeper um, that was drafted that was also on the team. One of the stories that, that Dick Cecil would, would tell me about often was when the Chiefs took the Atlanta media and a lot of different people in the Atlanta media to London. And this was about exposing them to real soccer and what what the game could be like and they went to games and some of the articles from jesse outler writing about it and talking about going to see a west ham west brom league cup semi-final at the bowling ground um just the comparisons from jesse outler to that game to a georgia tech georgia football game he, he said he wrote at one point there's as much difference between bowling ground and atlanta stadium as there is between park avenue and the bowery Now, this was the trip that maybe got Outler hooked, though, because he said that he wasn't sure if soccer would work in the United States because he had no context. It's a lot like like me as a kid. When I played it, I liked it, but I didn't have the context for it to understand it. 
this was an eye-opening moment for him. And he said that after seeing that, he thought that within three or four years, the game would become popular. He could see that it would work. Um, some of the people that went on this trip, Milo Hamilton and Larry Munson, the commentators for the Atlanta Braves, they were part of this trip. I would have loved to have talked to Larry Munson about his time watching soccer in England. That would have been amazing. Uh, one of the, the cool stories about it was that Marion Jackson was one of the people who went. He was the sports editor of the Atlanta Daily World. And in London, he was constantly mistaken for the boxer, Sonny Liston, and stopped on the street as they were walking through town. This was a, a really big deal. And it goes back to the Chiefs doing things that other teams and other ownership groups didn't really even think to do. They had to introduce the game to people who had no understanding of it. So they took the majority of the Atlanta sports media to London to see multiple games. And it really served them well in getting the favorable press that they needed to start the team and, and get people excited about it. Atlanta was still relatively young and new to a lot of Americans. So Woosnam, quote, I've been trying to do here in 100 days what it took England 100 years to do. So the first 100 days of, of Phil Woosnam's time in Atlanta, he has to, I think, in, be involved in naming a team, let alone signing players and figuring out where they're going to practice and creating a preseason schedule in a country that doesn't really have a soccer ecosystem of teams to play. Everything that he would have known about how to start a season, he wouldn't have had access to here. So he had to figure out a way to do it, but he also had to create a lot of it from scratch. And it's one of the things that we always forget in this country because there is always that 100 year or so head start. And even today, soccer is still very young in this country. You know, this is, we're talking 50 plus years ago, but it's still very young. And those few generations of, of families that have grown up with the game, it's not like the stories that you can read about of fans whose families going back, you know, five, six generations have been Arsenal season ticket holders, for example. So all of the work that these people put in at the beginning, it was so much harder than they would have predicted and maybe even would have expected, even if they had an idea that it was going to be difficult. I think it still surprised them that it was as difficult as it was. It paid off. It just might not have paid off as fast as they would have hoped. In just a short amount of time, Woosnam managed to put together a roster to represent Atlanta in their inaugural season. And by the end of February, preseason training began with conditions some of the European recruits were pretty used to. 33 degrees with traces of snow. The first home game in Chiefs history was at Atlanta Stadium, which became Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and was then demolished for the creation of Turner Field. On April 22, 1967, the Chiefs played the San Diego Toros to a 1-1 draw. Woosnam scored the sole goal for the Chiefs. Yes, you heard that correctly, no need to rewind. Woosnam played, too, 
although his duties were primarily managerial. So when Phil Uslan was signed by the Atlanta Chiefs, the idea was that he would be a manager, but he had just completed the playing season with Aston Villa and was still playing at a good level at that time at 34 years old. He didn't want to rule out that he would play. I think his intention was that he wouldn't play very much, if at all. And he definitely played less as his time in Atlanta came over two seasons. But early on, and I think it's maybe a little bit of as he was trying to get the team to play the way that he wanted, and with guys coming in early on, maybe not meshing the way that he wanted, he ended up playing a little more than he thought he would at the very beginning. And it's actually Phil Lusenham who scored the first goal in Chiefs history. It was the first home game. They had lost on the road the weekend before uh, in a nationally televised game on CBS. Uh, they lost to Baltimore. But the first Chiefs home game, Phil Lusenham scored the first goal and, and was the manager who was involved in this game. And it's just a credit to him and everything that he had to do to launch this at the beginning. He was probably doing camps and clinics all week. He was talking to everybody in the media that would have him on to talk. I mean, he was on radio shows. He was writing columns for the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. He was doing interviews. He's trying to organize the team for the first time. And oh yeah, he's actually got to go out and play and perform. And he did that and he scored that first goal. That was a really cool moment for the people in the stands. When we first started in this venture now two years ago, I wanted English speakers, speaking players only. This meant we could communicate with each other, first of all, and also communicate with the public here who didn't know anything about soccer. Now, these boys came from different countries, different ways of life, different walks of life, and it is a tremendous adjustment for all of them. I've never met a group of people who've settled in so well and got to understand each other so well and worked so efficiently as these have. The first match drew 11,293 people to Atlanta Stadium. And this was a new sort of crowd, something of a contrast with the typical Atlanta sports crowd. Wrote Atlanta Journal sports editor Furman Bisher, quote, There were more beards in the group, more of the apparent hungering intellectual, pseudo or real, and more youth, unquote. It was clear at that point something new was happening in Atlanta. Healthcare offers you exceptional, hassle-free care closer to home. Piedmont, an official healthcare provider of Atlanta United. The 1967 season concluded successfully on the pitch. Phil Woosnam led the team in scoring with eight goals, seven assists. Atlanta posted the second highest attendance in the NPSL. The Chiefs drew 104,426 people to 15 home games at Atlanta Stadium. Financially, however, the first season wasn't quite a success. The Chiefs lost $300,000, just as Bartholomew predicted. On the bright side, the revenue from baseball made up the difference, as the Braves continued to back their soccer club. Interest in soccer traveled from the front office down to the Braves players. 
Phil Necro, the pitcher for the Braves who would go on to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, spoke on his interest in soccer, which grew after he watched the World Cup in 1966. Necro was impressed by the Chiefs players, saying, quote, This game amazes me. The fellows that play it must be in top physical condition to run as much as they do. The way they use their feet and heads amazes me too. Soccer is not an easy sport. There's no doubt about that. And I try to watch as many games as I can, either on TV or in person. The 1967 season was, I would say, successful for the Atlanta Chiefs. Not as successful on the field as they would have wanted. They didn't make the playoffs. They didn't win the first championship in the NPSL. But it was successful at the gate. And it was eye-opening, I think, that they were successful at the gate because of the market of Atlanta at that time. They weren't expected to draw because Atlanta had no soccer history really up to this point. And they weren't expected to draw by a lot of people nationally because a lot of people looked down on Atlanta. And maybe that was the case when Atlanta United was announced and there were people who thought it wouldn't be successful. The Chiefs broke that stereotype. And it's kind of difficult to quantify what success was at this time because it was so brand new. And you also had the overriding spectacle of two leagues competing for interest and talk about a merger all year long and what that would look like. And, and Dick Cecil and many others in the Chiefs organization were heavily involved in those talks. And you finish the 1967 season with a lot of comparison between the two leagues. Also a lot of threats from FIFA and the U.S. Soccer Football Federation at the time because of the Chiefs League being the outlaw league. Uh, you had FIFA really have to sit everybody down and create a merger. And there, there's all kinds of storylines and soap opera elements of that. It finally all came together and they were able to go into 1968 as an a unified entity, but so much damage had been done nationally and so much money had been spent that maybe they weren't at their strongest going into 1968. So the Chiefs were okay in terms of the financials. They knew they were going to invest money. They knew they were going to lose money. They, they accepted that. And also the Braves were still new at that time too. The Braves were making good money. So they knew that they could take money from the overall organization, plant the seeds on the soccer side, and they hoped that it would bear fruit. That was the idea. So coming out of 67 for the Chiefs, they were they were okay with where they were. Maybe the league as a whole wasn't, but the Chiefs were. Woosnam returned as head coach in 1968. CBS signed a one-year TV contract to broadcast games. The league would soon have enough teams to create two divisions. One of the most important things that the Chiefs did in throughout the 1967 season, but especially after the season ended leading into 1968, the Chiefs were the only team in either of the, the two leagues that signed players to 12-month contracts. And the idea was that they would play the six-month season, and they would work to grow the game in the community the other six months of their contract. So Phil Woosnam took a lot of pride in the number of camps and clinics that the club did to introduce the game. And, and at times, 
they were literally introducing what a soccer ball was and how the game was played and how you didn't use your hands. It was at that kind of level. There was also a lot of foresight in, in building the roster that, that he wanted for the 1968 season. He, he said in a, an interview that he wanted to have 24 or 25 players at all times during training because not just to have more robust practice sessions, but he wanted to do more scrimmages like they did a few times in 67 around the state. Uh, they had a schedule during preseason drawn up for the 1968 season with going to Columbus and Macon and LaGrange and Rome and Athens and playing games and playing intra-squad scrimmages and doing clinics for the community. That was as important to Dick Cecil and Phil Woosnam as the success on the field. And that's the element that no one else in the United States was doing at that time. I think if you go back and look at the late 60s and who introduced more people to the sport of soccer, you would come back to the Atlanta Chiefs. The Atlanta Chiefs opened the season with a 2-1 win over the Detroit Cougars. The crowd at Atlanta Stadium was over 11,000. That roar of the crowd that you hear is the appearance of Phil Woosom into the ball game for Graham Newton. This is the starting combination, or the, rather the combination three weeks ago that scored two of the goals for the Chiefs in their 3-2 victory over Manchester. In the summer of 1968, something special happened. The Chiefs played host to English club Manchester City in a friendly at Atlanta Stadium. One of the most important byproducts of the, the two leagues merging and getting the sanctioning from FIFA was that the Chiefs could host international games. They couldn't do that in 1967 because of, of being the outlaw league. So early on in 1968, the Chiefs wanted to bring big time opponents to Atlanta. And you had European teams and South American teams touring the United States throughout the, the history of, of those clubs. You, you had er, very early tours of major clubs coming to the United States. Santos and Pelé came through the United States quite often in the 60s. So Atlanta wanted in on that action. They wanted to, to bring that to the, the community here that they were trying to grow. And again, it's back to providing like context and providing superstars for the Atlanta fans to see. Let's go back to when the Chiefs played Man City. And they have this, I remember because the new, at that time you don't have, we don't have CNN, we don't have a lot of networks. So everybody's focused on six o'clock news. And there's this woman, they said, riding down the street saying the British are coming. <laughs> Even as a kid, like some woman is riding on the streets and the British is coming. <laughs> Manchester City was the current at the time they won the, the English First Division Championship, the, the precursor to the Premier League, they won that in the 1967-68 season. So before they clinched it, the Chiefs were already talking to them about coming for a mid-season friendly. Once everything got nailed down, it, it became a, a huge moment. While it was labeled a friendly, some might say there were stakes for this match. Alan Hawk in the Atlanta Journal said, quote, the future of pro soccer in this country could very well hinge on Atlanta's response to the match, unquote. Manchester City was led by manager Joe Mercer. His assistant was Malcolm Allison. 
Both men had ties to West Ham, like Woosnam. This is John Cockney. I think the, the, other, the greatest rivalry of that was because of the two coaches. You had Phil Woosnam, our coach, and you had Malcolm Allison, Manchester City coach, who had been played together with West Ham United. And so there was a, already a built-in rivalry. The game was scheduled for May 26th, and epic rains prevented the game from being played. So you sell all these tickets, you have this huge spectacle, you don't even get to play the game on the day that it's booked for, you have to play it the next day, which I believe was a Monday night, I think it was set to be on a Sunday night. So it gets moved to a Monday night, you still drew 23,000 people, which was the biggest crowd the Chiefs had ever drawn. It was one of the biggest crowds for a professional soccer match in the United States at that time. The two teams kicked off on May 27th, 1968 and the Chiefs didn't hold anything back against the English champs. And here's John Cocking again. Now, the extent of it really was that you have Manchester City, who had won the Eng what was then the English First Division. They're on tour at the end of the season. They're here to enjoy themselves. We're in the middle of our 68 championship season, and so we're going gangbusters, and we can't think of anything better than beating Manchester City. With the two coaches being friends as they were, it was it was a competition. And the Chiefs actually won. They won 3-2. Graham Newton, Kaiser Motong, and Freddie Mwila soared goals. And uh, we managed to win the first game. I think it was 2-1, to one, was it? Or 3-2? to two. And, uh, and Malcolm Allison was so incensed because of his rivalry with Phil Woosnam that he did two things. He rearranged their schedule so they could come back and play us again, and he also sent for some, to England for some extra players to come across. Mm -hmm. And then when we beat him again the second time, that was just, uh, it was insult to injury, but it was wonderful. <laughs> the local media had a field day. Alan Hawk opened his game story with the following line, quote, England suffered her worst defeat on American soil since the War of 1812 Monday night at Atlanta Stadium. The title of Jesse Outler's column was Hail to the Chiefs. Outler deemed the match the largest crowd ever to see a soccer match in the Southeast, saying, quote, those 23,141 customers couldn't have cheered louder Monday night if the Braves had won the seventh game of the World Series. City, they're at the top of their game when we beat them. That's not a low average team. They got superstars on that team. We don't really have superstars on this team at that time. If you look at what sports is about, it's about championships. If we look at what sports is about, it's who you beat. And in soccer, an American team beating a team like that? What got interesting was after the game, Manchester City didn't take it very well. Uh, they said things like the Chiefs were not even a fourth division team in England, and they, they kind of trashed the, the quality of the Chiefs, even though they lost. Now, to be fair, Manchester City was missing some players. Uh, this was 1968. Uh, there were games going on with the English national team. They had players who played for the national team. So they weren't able to play in this game. And that was one of the excuses that Manchester City had after the game. The Chiefs kept on ticking. They had started a great season in 68. They beat Manchester City on May 27th. Two days later, they went to Dallas and played in front of 3,000 fans at the Cotton Bowl and beat Dallas 1-0. McFarland scored that goal. After that trip, they had to go to New York 
So two days after the Dallas game, they go to Yankee Stadium to play the New York Generals. That's a scoreless draw. But by then, the conversation had already started about Manchester City wanting a rematch. So it was finally booked for the Chiefs to come back. It was announced in early June uh, for Manchester City to come back and play the Chiefs. Announced in early June, it was set for June 15th. The Chiefs had a really busy schedule leading up to that. This was the only date that they could do this and get it done. Manchester City comes back through all of the talk you can imagine about it's going to be different this time and we've got all of our players this time. Well, the Chiefs won again. That was the largest crowd I think we had, and I guess it was 28,000 people. And that was the largest crowd we ever had. And you put that against the 50s and 60s and 70,000s now. Uh, it felt great. I mean, at 28,000, the stadium still didn't look full, full, full. Right. But uh, they made a lot of noise, and um, it was music to our ears. The punchy headlines continued, including Chiefs Whip Marvels and Malcolm Still Can't Believe It. Wrote Tom Dial, quote, Saturday's game was a most stimulating experience for soccer in the U.S. Over 20,000 of the tickets were sold at the gate, so this was not a hard sell. It was just fan enthusiasm. These games were huge, and I, I think for fans who had maybe heard about the Chiefs, had maybe seen a game, this was the biggest soccer game they'd ever seen. This put the Chiefs on the map. This put soccer in the United States on the map. You couldn't really argue it once you lose to a team twice that it wasn't a good standard. Now, would that Chiefs team have held up in the English First Division full season? No, of course not. But in a one-off game, or in this case, in two one-off games, they showed that they were better than the English champions at that time. So I think the idea that the level of these early professional leagues in the United States wasn't all that great, it's not true. And I think what Atlanta showed in these, not just the team, but the, the city, was that soccer could sell in this country. It needed to be in the right context. It needed to be presented the right way. But soccer could absolutely sell tickets and move people emotionally in these, these games. And it was so important that Manchester City came to Atlanta and that the Chiefs showed so well, both on the field and in the stands. If the quote is accurate, let's assume that it is accurate, or maybe it is not. But uh, I am quite sure that we are not fourth division. We're way up above that, and it's hard to assess where we are, but we're not way down the fourth well, division. Well, if you can beat the first division champion, it would seem that you would belong in the first division. If the Chiefs moved to England, where would you put them? It's difficult to assess. Uh, we could probably go quite comfortably into the second division. The interesting fact which came out of the last game, of course, was that... Uh, uh, should we, in effect, uh, be just three players short of being a first division side? They were claiming they were three players short of their championship side uh, as far as the English Division One was concerned. Does that mean because we won that game deservedly last time, are we, in effect, somewhere along the way, just three players short of being a, a championship side ourselves? And for a team from the South to beat a major team across the pond, a team with a storied history, Man City has a storied history. We're, we're not talking about just some average guys here, okay, or city. To beat them twice in one year after they said it was a fluke, 
how can you not say that this city, Atlanta, is not the center for soccer and the culture of soccer in, in America? from uh, South Africa. One of the players who was so important in the Chiefs' wins over Manchester City was Kaiser Milton. And he came to Atlanta after their first season in the league. He was recruited by Phil Woosnam and by Dick Cecil. Kaiser was born in South Africa, and he had first played professionally for the Orlando Pirates at the age of 16. So he came to Atlanta, and at first it was a real struggle for him because of the weather. He was coming off of an injury. He actually made his debut for the team as a substitute in that first game against Manchester City, and he scored in that. Motong came to Atlanta by way of South Africa and he quickly made a strong impression with his foot skills and his speed. He even made an impression on Pelé. After the match against Santos, the Brazilian superstar compared Motong to Eusebio, a Portuguese soccer player who himself had a memorable nickname, Black Panther. After the, the Manchester City games, the Chiefs were able to bring one more big international opponent in 1968, and it was Santos and Pelé. And after the game, Pelé was so complimentary. His time in Atlanta against the Chiefs was very good. And one of the things that was so powerful afterwards was what he had to say about Kaiser Motong and how impressed he was with Kaiser, comparing him to Sabio. Eusebio had carried Portugal to the semifinals of the World Cup in 1966. So for Pelé to put Kaiser at that kind of a level, it's another one of those validation points. And it's another one of those things that internationally, maybe in Atlanta, we didn't have the, the context at that time to understand how big of a compliment that was. But when a quote like that starts to get spread internationally, that's another one of those things that puts Atlanta and puts Kaiser on the map. You're talking about three players in Pelé and Motong and Eusebio who were all powerful, but so talented on the ball and having the kind of technical skill that they did that's what set them apart. And that's what you really didn't have a lot of in the game at that time. It's hard to explain. I mean, he just seemed to do it. Like they say, he seemed like he had the ball attached to his shoelaces and it go around. He had a tremendous shot on him too. And it goes back to Atlanta in 1968. He scored 16 goals in 15 games. He was one of the top scorers in the league that year. He was voted rookie of the year. He was named to the all-star team two of the biggest sports figures in the city were both black and both very different in their backgrounds in Hank Aaron and in Kaiser Motong. Kaiser was known in the city. Like even the sports fans that hadn't really gotten hooked on soccer yet, they knew Kaiser Motong was. Motong would come up big several times for the Chiefs, but perhaps no bigger than the NASL semifinals. Atlanta was playing the Cleveland Stokers. Peter McParlin scored the tying goal for the Chiefs with just 51 seconds remaining to play in the first overtime period. Then Motong scored the winning goal in sudden death. Coach, first of all, congratulations. It was quite a victory this afternoon, wasn't it? This is a tight one. Uh, 
At the end of the, uh, the first period of overtime, after two hours of play, we thought it had gone. You know, we just had one disallowed, and we could hardly believe we'd get another chance, but fortunately it came our way, and Peter put it in. Kaiser came through in the second overtime now, in the sudden death playoff. Uh, how much longer did you think it was going to go? No, this uh, uh, tells a lot about the character of the people we have in the club, to be quite honest. It's not so much conditioning as heart at this stage. You know, when you've gone that far, it isn't only conditioning. It's, it's uh, your, pur your purpose, your determination, your drive to succeed, the pride you have in your ability as a professional. This is what drove them on today. Now, Kaiser ended up being so inspired by his time in Atlanta that he wanted to start his own team in South Africa, and he named them the Kaiser Chiefs, and he used the, the same logo. And it was never something that the Atlanta Chiefs an issue with. Dick Cecil and Kaiser kept a friendship for the, the rest of Dick's life. And I know they stayed in touch. Kaiser was somebody who was interviewed actually quite a bit around Atlanta United's MLS Cup appearance in 2018. And being 50 years after he won the championship with the Chiefs here in Atlanta, it was, I think, so cool to hear him look back on his time in Atlanta, which wasn't that long. It was a few years as such an important part and he had such a fondness for the city and how well he was received by the people of the city. Motong's game winner against the Stokers sent the Atlanta Chiefs to the league title match. The last-minute heroics epitomize what many believed that this 1968 Chiefs were a team of destiny. Said Dick Cecil, quote, For my money, no one else but the Chiefs can win it. When a team has that much heart, you just can't believe they can be beaten in a pressure game. presents NASL Championship Soccer, being sponsored by the people who bring you the light, refreshing taste of Coca-Cola. Hello, everyone. John Miller today for... The Chiefs were the first team in Atlanta to win a division title outside of the Braves and the Falcons at the time. And their foe in the finals was the San Diego Toros. It was a two-game series. Uh, first game was in San Diego. And the Toros drew almost 10,000 people to Balboa Stadium. It was a real stalemate. It ended up finishing scoreless. Uh, both teams had a good number of shots. San Diego had 18 shots, but they only put two on target. Atlanta had 12 shots in the game with five on target. So that created the showdown in game two back in Atlanta on September 28th. Now, one of the storylines coming into the finals and especially in that week between game, game two was what was next for soccer in the country because a lot of teams around the North American Soccer League were taking a hard look at the books and realizing that they had spent a lot of money and they weren't seeing a return. And some ownership groups didn't have a lot of money to spend or had less money to spend or needed to invest money in different areas of their business portfolios. Maybe their baseball team needed more investment. So that was a huge talking point. So it's a huge moment for the Atlanta Chiefs in that they're in the final, they're getting the second game at home, they have an opportunity to win the league championship, but there might not be a league after this. And it was a huge push in the week leading up to the game to sell season tickets for 1969. The The Chiefs Booster Club is another really underrated part of the Chiefs story. The first supporters group for soccer in, in Atlanta, uh, the Booster Club was led by uh, Dr. Parton at Emory University, and they 
kind of found a, an area between what a supporters group would be that we're used to today to a, a literal booster club like we see in a high school program where they're fundraising for the program. The booster club put an ad in the Atlanta Constitution the day before the, the second game of the final series asking fans to commit to season tickets for 1969. Just to, to give you an idea of what kind of commitment they were talking about, $50 in the club level for the season, $40 on the sides, $30 for general admission. For kids, it was $10 for the general admission for a 16-game home schedule. Uh, ads were put in the, the, the personal section of the classifieds asking fans to come to the game. Game two of the finals kicked off on September 28th. It was a home match played at Atlanta Stadium. The Braves were playing the Dodgers in a series in Atlanta that weekend. And, you know, you get to the finals, it wasn't scheduled as far out in advance. And they had to move the game up to 4.05 kickoff for the Chiefs because the Braves were playing the Dodgers at 8.05 that night. Now, San Diego was considered the favorite coming into the game. The, the Chiefs took a 2-0 lead in the first half of, of that final. The all-NASL halfback for Sago, Ron Crisp, he was injured early with a broken arm in the game. Vic Crow had to mark the leading scorer in the league for San Diego, Pepe Fernandez. Uh, Gordon Ferry had to mark uh, Pelé's former World Cup teammate, Vava. They handled it really well defensively, and it's a credit to Phil Wisdom's soccer mind to create that kind of a, a defensive plan but not have it limit the team offensively. Uh, McParlin scored on a header to open the scoring in the 23rd minute. Delroy Scott scored 20 minutes later, right before the end of the first half. A 20-yard blast with his right foot. It was off of a rebound. Uh, Motong had headed it on, cleared away. Scott blasted it in. Then a downpour hit right before halftime, so it was kind of sloppy in the second half. Motong completed the scoring in the 80th minute. He picked up the ball at midfield, dribbled past a couple of defenders, and beat the goalkeeper 1v1. This was a huge moment for these players. A lot of them had had kind of taken this job and coming to Atlanta sight unseen, honestly. Atlanta wasn't as known as it is today. They didn't know what Atlanta was. And these players really took to the city. They, they took to the community. So many of them stayed. And that was something that was rare at the time. And these, these teams around the country culminated in that day at Atlanta Stadium where the Chiefs brought the first national championship won by an Atlanta team to the city. And the city was full of celebration. Kaiser Motog was carried off the pitch said Vic Rouse after the match, quote, Right from the beginning, I just had confidence all the way that we would win. Usually, I'm not confident going into a game, but today I was. The Chiefs won the 1968 NASL League Championship. It was the first title won by a professional sports team in Atlanta's history. Atlanta, Georgia, is the largest city in the southeastern part of the United States. Over a million people now live here. A major industrial, business, and cultural center, today, Atlanta is also becoming the center of a professional sport new in the United States, but known around the world. Atlanta is home of the Chiefs, a club led to national prominence in two short years by Phil Woosnam, international football star and coach. Yes, the backdrop is there, 
and it's real that it was failing and the league's survival chances were not high, but it doesn't take away from the accomplishment that Phil Woosnam, Dick Cecil, all the players that were signed and were part of the team and, and all fans who supported it and really went out and sold it as well. All of that came together in a magical season and a magical championship. And so the soccer team really was a standout because they hit success so quick. And we had not seen, we were just getting a, accustomed to football and baseball. And now here comes the Atlanta Chiefs. Kapengwe back to John. John sends it upfield to Motong. Motong sends it into the middle to Wheeler. Freddie on his left to Brian Hughes into the penalty area. Here it comes. A shot. Goal! Atlanta! After the 1968 season and teams started to fold and there were a lot of conversations about whether there would even be a league, the Chiefs, and because of the the success at the gate, they they wanted to keep going. They didn't really know what that would look like. They didn't know if that would be as a touring team. They didn't know if that would be playing all-star teams. They didn't know what that would be, but they wanted to keep going. And the Booster Club was a big part of that. So luckily, four other teams were able to, to keep it moving into 1969. So with Phil Woosnam, transitioning from being the player coach in Atlanta to being the commissioner of the league because of that vision that he had and because of that that spirit that he had honestly everything was going to be a little bit different with the the Chiefs and honestly with the league you didn't really know what it was going to look like with only five teams and how it would go down Atlanta was instrumental in keeping things moving um a lot of the reporting at this time was that essentially it was a, a nonprofit organization because they weren't making money. The Braves were investing and in trying to grow the game and they were in a position to be able to invest so they, they could do that. As good as the 68 Chiefs were, the 1969 Chiefs might have even been better. But the league was much smaller that year. The Chiefs ended the season in second place, a point behind Kansas City. Their final record was 11-2-3. It was the best season in Atlanta soccer history. That year, Montong finished the season with 16 goals and 4 assists. He was named to the NASL All-Star team, along with teammate Emmett Kapengwe. The Chiefs were really good in 1969 as well. It's a five-team league, so you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. There wasn't a championship game or playoffs because it's only five teams. They had a kind of crazy scoring system. And that's what ultimately kept Atlanta from winning back-to-back championships. The, the scoring system gave bonus points for goals scored up to a certain point. So the Chiefs were in the race to win the league all the way up until the very end. But they ended up getting knocked out by just a couple of points where they, they could have went back-to-back in, in league titles. The 1970 team was good as well, but it marked a big change in the program. The 71 Chiefs were as as good as the 68 and 69 Chiefs. They made it to the championship game of the league. They played the Dallas Tornado in that. They ended up losing to Dallas. They beat the New York Cosmos uh, in their first year of existence in the playoffs. It's fitting that the championship era of the Chiefs, the 68 to 71 era, 
ended with Lana and Dallas in that final because Dallas and Lamar Hunt were so important to the league's success at this time. And Lamar was in a position after the American Football League had merged with the NFL to really pour resources into the soccer side and keep it moving. And they were the original team that lasted the longest in the North American Soccer League. Uh, Dick Cecil had so much respect for Lamar Hunt. They were two of the real key figures who drove all the competitive decisions in the league of how the league would be structured, what kind of schedule it would be, how they would try to grow the game. And another big connection between the two clubs was Ron Newman. Ron Newman had come over to play for the Chiefs at the very beginning, ended up being traded to Dallas in the 1968 season, missed out on the championship, but was there to support his former teammates. The initial era of the NASL and the, the championship era of the Chiefs it's a fitting end that it was a loss to Dallas in 1971. Everything looked different going into 72. I think a growing tightening of the books at that time. There was a growing push in, I think, the media at that time to invest more in growing the baseball team. And the lack of success for the business side of the soccer team was seen as a detriment to the baseball team. And that was the way it was starting to be positioned. So. The end of 1971, there was a, a lot of questions about if the team would come back. The Braves decided to fund the 1972 season. But it had a very different feel to it. Through its history, the Atlanta Chiefs featured several quality players. In 1970, the Chiefs signed their first American-born player, a Macon native named Sonny Carter. He was six foot one and 170 pounds and played at Emory as a medical student. He'd later become a physician and an astronaut. Another player was Manfred Kammerer, a goalkeeper from Germany. Kammerer made nine saves to keep a clean sheet for the Chiefs against the Washington Darts in 1970, made even more impressive by the fact that the match was played on a baseball field at Catholic University. Said Vic Rouse, quote, The conditions were not fair to either team. They completed a baseball game just 10 minutes before our match started. It made for very tight playing conditions and the pitcher's mound certainly didn't help. Kammerer again would lead the Chiefs to a clean sheet in a friendly with Hearts from Scotland. Hearts would take 31 shots in the match, and Kammerer would finish with 19 saves. Quote, Their goalkeeper was unbelievable tonight, said Wilson Strachan, the director of travel for the Hearts. In 1972, the Chiefs also signed a player named Paul Child, an Englishman. Child signed with Aston Villa when he was 13 years old. A few years later, Aston Villa loaned him to the Atlanta Chiefs. Child recounts the story on the podcast called Good Seats Still Available, hosted by Tim Hanlon. Gabo Gavarich was our, our coach. He was a Yugoslavian coach. And all of us kind of had some background in carpentry or carpet laying and different stuff like this and uh, Gabo Gavrich used to know, know how to lay carpet so the players could earn more money before this tournament began. We used to go down there and we even laid down the indoor-outdoor carpet in the Tower Palace so that we were ready to play on it. So for a week before we got to practice on it we had the opportunity to go down there, earn some extra money. 
and help lay the carpet in the cow palace before we played on it. So if there was some kinks in the carpet, it was our fault, nobody else's. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this. How are you, folks? It's uh, Tim Hanlon, and uh, it is uh, Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Welcome back. If uh, you've uh, returned uh, for yet another scintillating episode, we... Child would go on to score eight goals in 12 appearances while he was on loan with the Chiefs. For his performance, he was named to the NASL First Team All-Star for the 1972 season. Yeah, thank you for coming back. And if it's your first time here, uh, well, let's uh, hope we can delight you uh, for the first time. And uh, we appreciate you somehow figuring out how to find us. Uh, today, we are uh, back on the sport of soccer, uh, as we are wont to do. And uh, we are yet again uh, joined by a National Soccer Hall of Famer. Uh, Paul Child is our guest and uh, a legend in uh, in the North American Soccer League, the major indoor soccer league. Uh, yes, and even a spell in the American Soccer League for a little uh, cup of coffee, as well as the first time we've talked about it, the CISL, the Continental Indoor Soccer League from the 1990s. Uh, Paul Child has uh, uh, been there, done that uh, during the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s uh, in the sport of professional soccer in the United States. Even a, a couple of games with the U.S. national team, uh, while not even being a U.S. citizen. We'll get into that story. Uh, and among many others with our guest, Paul Child, he of uh, places like the Atlanta Chiefs, uh, both versions, uh, the San Jose Earthquakes, where he was a breakout star. Uh, the Pittsburgh spirit of the uh, MISL uh, and a number of other places. Uh, you know, Paul is a, a legend on a, on a number of different fronts, uh, you know, was the number five leading scorer in the North American Soccer League uh, back in the day. Uh, and um, just, uh, you know, a prolific go- goal scorer all around uh, uh, stellar guy and uh, has lots of great stories from his various stops in both indoor and outdoor soccer and his Hall of Fame career. Uh, we'll get into that in a couple of seconds. Going back to the very beginning, Phil Wiesnam understood that you couldn't just put a team up and expect people to show up and support it. You had to go out and do the work in the community, but you also had to put out an entertaining product. And the first two years that were led by Phil Wiesnam and the next years that were led by Vic Crow, I think you saw that. And I think you saw a team that was consistently among the best in the league from 68 to 71. You saw a team that scored a lot of goals. You saw a lot of attacking talent and you saw consistent players as well. And I think that's the other element that Atlanta had going for them at that time. They kept a lot of their players. A lot of teams were would come and go with rosters and you'd get to know a player and they'd be gone somewhere else or they wouldn't come back to the States. The Chiefs team stayed re- remarkably consistent over this period of time. So players developed a following and players developed, I think, a chemistry as well. So it's not just the the work and growing the game that the front office did, that Woosnam and Crow did, that the players did. It was also putting a good product on the field and competing for championships, winning one, but also being an entertaining team to watch. That was an essential part of the Chiefs' success in the early days.
the players and staff of the Chiefs organization really started this um, movement of galvanizing local interest by staging clinics and organizing uh, youth teams and inviting big international clubs to play at Atlanta Fulton uh, County Stadium. The biggest of these would feature none other than the biggest soccer star in the world. Rivelino, direto para a área, no alto Pelé! Pelé! Gol do Brasil! Ronaldo José de Almeida, olha lá, olha lá, no placar! Pelé and his Brazilian club, Santos, played the Atlanta Chiefs in a game that drew 27,000 fans. And at that time, that was a record for uh, crowds in NASL history. Pelé, born Edson Araches do Nascimento, was a Brazilian soccer player and one of the most recognizable faces in this sport in the entire world. I mean, nowadays he would be comparable to Lionel Messi or Kylian Mbappe. He spent most of his career at Santos, scoring nearly a goal a game. He finished his career with 583 appearances and scored 569 goals. Um, this, this is a momentous occasion for all of us, uh, whether you're in the Boosters Club or whether you're a part of the Chiefs office or if you're just a soccer fan as far as Atlanta's concerned. To have a, a team of the standing of Santos come into a city like this and then play the Chiefs, this, this is quite something. But I'm quite sure, you know, I, I'm sure that Pele is quite capable of handling himself in any type of situation, no matter what any other player tends to throw at him. He can cope with the situation. This is what makes him the player he is. This is why he's the greatest player in the world. Pele's emergence in international soccer occurred in 1958 at the World Cup in Sweden. He was the youngest player to play in a World Cup final match. As a 17-year-old, he scored two goals, and Brazil beat Sweden 5-2 to win the World Cup. It was really important that the Chiefs were able to bring Santos and Pelé to Atlanta when they did in 1968. Maybe not the prime of Pelé's career at that time, maybe starting the downside of his prime. He still went on and won a World Cup in 1970 with Brazil and had more good years with Santos after that. But Atlanta got a chance to see one of the best athletes in the world at that time. and. It's something that I don't think you can minimize. You know, any city that gets that opportunity, it can be transformational because there are kids in that audience that probably had never seen a soccer game before. And you see play and you can immediately tell that he is that good. And he scores three goals in the game. And he's just such a, a gentleman as well in terms of selling the game worldwide and, and talking to the media and everything that he did during his time in Atlanta around this game. It was a really important factor in the early Chiefs' success. So as as fun as the, the wins over Manchester City were, I think Pelé's visit was another one of the things that kind of put Atlanta on the map and was so important Maybe not directly for the Chiefs in, in terms of selling tickets and and winning games, but in terms of giving kids that push to play soccer or that push to keep playing soccer and want to be playing at a high level. When you get a chance to see greatness in front of it, it's just something you can never discount and never forget either. He'd have a hand or a foot in two more World Cup titles for Brazil the 1962 World Cup in Chile, and the 1970 World Cup in Mexico. 
Pele was given the nickname Ore, or the king. Pele was one of a few players to wear the prolific number 10. He was a very special guy. Jeff Solom, who went on to work at Umbro after his own playing career in Atlanta, collaborated with Pele after his playing days were over. I also handled um, Valderrama, Carlos Valderrama, Pibe. And the two things that they had in common besides being very good players, they all knew that because of their stature in the game, they would be endorsable when they stopped playing if they were good citizens. His work exposed Solom to a different side of Pele, the business side, the side that was equal parts altruistic and savvy. I flew down to Rio, met him in his office <clears throat> for the first time, and we talked and it was, it was all good. And then he said, um, I was getting ready to leave. And he said, uh, Jeff, Jeff, one, one thing, one rule you have to know, Pelé never says no, Jeff says no. And so I didn't understand at first. And he said, you'll see it, you know, at the first meeting, but when we need to go, I'm, I can't be the one to say it's time. You have to be the bad guy. And sure enough, every time, because we'd go to some place, as I said, for maybe two hours, and there'd be a line around the block, and we'd have to, the limo would be there, we'd have to get out to make the next appointment. And I'd, they'd all be going, no, no, and Pelé would, so sorry, you know, and, and then I'd have to say, no, no, you know, we've got a schedule, we've got to go. And so he, he had it all planned out, though. He was a, he was, um, he was a very astute businessman. The Chiefs definitely, to me, don't get the credit that they should have gotten for bringing a, a, another layer to sports. And then Pele comes to town, and you just you just know about it. You just know he's here, and they're talking about it. Now, but you know he's this larger-than-life guy. When Pele came to Atlanta in 1968 for the friendly with Santos, he was entering the final window of his career. But that's not to say that he wasn't playing at an elite level. Pele scored a hat-trick in the match. Pele, number 10, maintained his standing as the world's number one player. It was a competitive contest, although maybe not quite with the same edge as the friendlies played against Manchester City. Against Santos, the Chiefs scored 19 seconds into the match. Santos was so impressed that they actually cheered for the Chiefs. Santos drove hard against the Chiefs to keep their lead. Santos eventually won the match 6-2. Fans stormed the field after the game. As Jesse Outler described, quote, they raced onto the field, surrounded Pele, and wouldn't let him go. Since there wasn't time for autographs, the soccer aficionado settled for Pele's shirt. Atlanta's finest cleared a path for the shirtless star to race into the dressing room. Otherwise, Pele might still be at the stadium. The first site for the Chiefs to spread the word about the sport was Macon, Georgia, home to the Allman Brothers and the Tubman Museum. Because of its location in the center of the state, Macon is sometimes referred to as the heart of Georgia. 
So it makes sense that in 1967, Woosnam selected Macon as the place to host youth soccer. It was a scrimmage at Luther Williams Field between local teenagers. Start in the center of the state and watch the branches grow. As Chiefs assistant coach Eric Woodward said, quote, the future of soccer in this country lies with the youth. I think the Chiefs were the only organization in soccer in the United States that understood that you had to grow the game with kids. You couldn't just rely like baseball and football and basketball could in people showing up just because it was a big deal and it was a sport they knew. You had to develop a new generation of people who grew up with soccer. Eric Woodward was a big part of that along with Woosnam and and Cecil and, and the players. They had to try to grow it from scratch. And, you know, maybe the the Braves thought that they could fund it for longer, where investing in those kids at the very, very beginning would then pay off down the road. Maybe that's why Dick Cecil was involved in bringing another, a second version of the Chiefs back in the late 70s, thinking that the special generation had gotten older now and maybe would be able to drive themselves to games and buy tickets. But it's a process. And I think we've seen it in Atlanta with, that first generation of kids who played the game in the late 60s who then had kids and then those kids had kids and now you have generation after generation after generation of people who have grown up with soccer at the forefront eric woodward and the chiefs saw that at that time they were ahead of their time in seeing it and trying to implement strategies to to make that come to fruition And ultimately, maybe they didn't have enough time for it to come to fruition to support professional soccer in in Atlanta in the 70s. From the beginning, Woosnam and the Atlanta Chiefs made it a critical point of their mission to educate the people of Atlanta on the rules of soccer and how to play. And that started with the youth. Wrote Jesse Outler in his article titled Super Soccer Salesman, quote, When Woosnam arrived here, I'd never seen a kid kicking a soccer ball. Phil observed that America is the only country where you throw a kid a ball and he catches it. He hoped to change that in the greater Atlanta area. The Chiefs came in. Soccer being the way it was, you didn't know the players. And you know the Chiefs didn't really have big names. And even if they did, the only name that I guess I knew was Pele. You knew Pele. That's the one guy you knew. And Woosnam did. Soon, you saw many youngsters kicking a ball around. Woosnam didn't invent the game of soccer, but he sold it in Atlanta. He was the sport's best salesman in this city. The Atlanta Chiefs and their impact, it doesn't happen if you hire somebody else in that role. Phil Woosnam was critical. And I think so often we talk about Phil Woosnam and his time as the commissioner of the North American Soccer League as his contribution to American soccer, but Atlanta brought him here first and he won a championship as a coach. Um, He brought or helped bring uh, big international opponents that captured the imagination of the Atlanta community and ended up really being instrumental in planting so many of those seeds that, that were important. I don't think I don't think we get to where we are now as fast as we do if Bill Bartholomew doesn't put Dick Cecil in charge of the soccer portion of the the organization. 
and then they don't hire Phil Woosnam and bring him here to lead it. Well, this has been one of the most pleasing aspects of our work since we've been in Atlanta. Uh, Twelve of the players, plus Dave Haas, the director of development, uh, spent three months at the end of last year visiting the schools. You know, we had tremendous assistance from people in education. And altogether, we came across 20,000 children, conducted something like 400 clinics, you know. And uh, the response and the enthusiasm amongst the youngsters in this city is really tremendous. This what gives us so much optimism, where we know where the, which way we're going to go in the future. It was one of the reasons why the Atlanta Chiefs looked for players who could speak English. When they brought players over... One, you had to speak English. And a big part of the player's um, duty was off the field as well as on. So um, everybody was required to do clinics. And if you couldn't speak English, you know, you couldn't do the other half of your job. Nick Papadakis joined the Chiefs in 1968 and made 74 appearances with the team. He was born in Greece but went to college in Canada at Hartwick College. I think the main reason it was Phil Wozno. He, uh, of course, all these players that were coming here, the team was a good team, so good players, um, uh, they can adjust to to anything. But Phil Wozno would not allow people to speak any other language than English. It was clearly important to Wozno, so much so his players had to use it on the pitch. I think Mike Cash was. Although he was English, he, he, was, he came to the team of his first practice and he was playing on the outside and he was calling for the ball. You know, pronto, pronto or, some, uh, you know, some stuff like that. Right. So Phil stopped the game, I mean the practice, and said, listen, here we speak English. How did you learn to speak English so fluently? Oh, well, uh, we are... It is because of, an, of the environment, you see. Johannesburg is so congested. It has got so many nations there. And uh, English is, a, is an official language. When we first started in this venture, now two years ago, I wanted English speakers, speaking players only. This meant we could communicate with each other, first of all, and also communicate with the public here who didn't know anything about soccer. Now, these boys came from different countries, different ways of life, different walks of life. And it is a tremendous adjustment for all of them. I've never met a group of people who've settled in so well and got to understand each other so well and worked so efficiently as these have. Along with his coaching staff, Wusna made a position for director of development. David Haas was the first person to serve that role in 1968. He even created a director of youth development, Vic Rouse, to support grassroots education and programs. Yeah, I saw a distinct difference in the the volume of kids play, and also the number of parents that knew how to coach or at least play the game. Maybe not coach, but how to play the game. And uh, you know, I'd run clinics one night a week. What we did was we gave the under eights one night to practice on their own with the team, and then one night they all came to one field, and I would run a clinic for them and the coaches. In 1968, it was reported that more boys were playing high school soccer in Atlanta than ever before. The number of amateur players participating on organized teams went from 300 to 8,500 in one year. High school teams increased from 6 to 42. DeKalb High School, one of the original seeds of soccer back in the early 20th century, didn't have soccer teams before the Atlanta Chiefs. And by 1968, it was reported the county had more soccer players than football players. By 1969, there were 55 varsity high school soccer teams in the state. So much of the Chiefs' legacy is really tied to how the game grew at the youth levels. And 
it might have started with a camp or a clinic or an appearance and it led to full-blown leagues and you had the ymcas uh, around the atlanta area form leagues the cap county was was one that really took to it and you had multiple youth leagues start the decatur ymca is the longest running youth league in the atlanta area they started with the chiefs and they're still going today and have actually had players develop there and come through to play for Atlanta United. It's it's a really cool story. By 1972, the city of Atlanta schools were installing a combination of football and soccer goals that would be put to use in all of Atlanta schools. Other cities seemed to be paying attention to what was happening in Atlanta. The NASL adopted the Atlanta plan for youth development. Atlanta quickly became a model for other cities. Said Woosnam, quote, I feel sure that the example set here in Atlanta will stimulate enthusiasm in other cities in the United States. I'd like to think that we will continue to set the pace in establishing soccer as a major sport throughout the United States. The other element that I think is easy to forget at this time is the the rest of the infrastructure of soccer in, in Atlanta it didn't exist. You didn't have referees, you didn't have coaches, and the Chiefs would go out and be involved along with the the Georgia State Soccer Association, which kind of had a few stops and starts around this time. And a lot of members of the Chiefs Booster Club were involved in launching the state association and keeping it running. And they had to go out and educate potential coaches and educate referees and get them certified and help create you know, state championships and, and things like that that I think we take for granted now that didn't exist prior to this. So, you know, whether it was the the camps, the clinics, the, the leagues getting started and getting supported by the team, uh, supporting the state association, going out and talking to high school coaches, going out and talking to, to people who want to referee, all of it had to be built from scratch. And for a professional organization to have the, honestly, the foresight and the understanding that those things were important too, along with selling tickets, along with signing players. It's incredible when you really look at the overall scope of what the Chiefs had to start, that they were as successful as they were. And it was absolutely a success on and off the field even for it being such a short period of time because it jump-started soccer in the Atlanta area in a way that no one else could have. The success of the Chiefs organization in connecting with the community inspired other sports. Bill Putnam, the president of what would later become the Atlanta Flames in the NHL, cited the growth of soccer with youth and believed that hockey could do the same. Even though the NASL didn't quite sell the way they hoped in Atlanta, international soccer did. In the spring of 1972, the Fox Theater screened the European Championships. Under the bright stars of the Fox Theater, Atlanta residents could watch England, West Germany, Belgium, or Italy in the quarterfinals. And although the professional players in Atlanta were all men, they made an effort to include teaching everybody about the game. If a woman doesn't know anything about soccer, she's not going to go to a game. She's not going to let her husband or a boyfriend go to a game because she doesn't know anything about soccer. So I think as the game grew with women, that's also another thing that helped boost the professional because the women, I mean, you just take a look at the stands. The stands, women, the men, they enjoy the game because they understand it. So I think it helped quite a bit that women 
got into playing the game. For Lamont, the Atlanta Chiefs had a personal impact. Lamont went to Booker T. Washington High School, the first public high school for black students in the state of Georgia and the Atlanta public school system. It's the same high school attended by Martin Luther King Jr. But for me, it was always something special about soccer and the Chiefs because maybe it was it seemed it seemed like something that was cool. It seems relatable. And, and, and so when I get to high school, what do I play? I play soccer. There were more schools at the time in the school system, in Atlanta public school system, and they all had a soccer team. It was amazing. And we even had players from uh, other countries playing on our team. I can't speak for the other schools. I, we might have been, really, we might have been one of the first or few schools to have uh, international players. We, and, and if you look at what we have now, it's, to me, it's like, hey, we've been here before. This is what we're supposed to be. If you look at what we've done here, it's a special place. You're listening to the History of Atlanta Soccer, an Atlanta United production hosted and produced by Jason Longshore and me, Sandy McAfee. This episode was edited by Diego Pinzon. Special thanks to Dee Turner, the University of Georgia Archives, the City of Atlanta, and the New Encyclopedia of Georgia. Additional thanks to Joe Freihofer, Ravi Moody, Holly Vera, Monique Rojas, Tiffany Hart, and the Atlanta History Center for their help and support on this episode. The song with just a voice and a guitar you heard close to the beginning of the episode is called City Too Busy to Hate by Jim Street. You can find more of his music on his YouTube channel, Street Music. To learn more, visit atlantaunited.com slash podcast. Piedmont Healthcare offers you exceptional, hassle-free care closer to home. Piedmont, an official healthcare provider of Atlanta United.